Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Jesus told us that not one sparrow on earth is forgotten before you. That you have the hairs of every head numbered. And that we need not fear, we are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus told us that you clothe the grass of the field, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire. And so how much more will you clothe us with the things that we need? Father, Jesus rebuked our weak faith and we openly confess we have weak faith. And we call on you that you would strengthen our hearts to recognize your goodness, your faithful provision. We have been commanded to to not seek what we are to eat and what we are to drink or to be worried because you know all of the things that we need. And so, Father, I want to pray on behalf of especially our seniors who have been isolated for so long and many of them are lonely. I want to pray on behalf of our students, some of whom are back in school and and things are beginning to be more normal, but they've had a long time off and things are strange. Maybe they're worried about their future and what will happen because of the past year. But I pray for those who are sick, who are recently diagnosed with different types of illness and disease. Perhaps they're worried and afraid. Lord, we want to confess in all of these things. It's tempting to forget your goodness and your faithfulness. And so we want to acknowledge your tender mercy, your unfailing love, your great care. And Father, I pray that you'd impress these things deep in our hearts so that no matter what causes our anxiety or fear or frustration or anger, we can give it to you now. Lord, I pray globally, this past week there have been airstrikes in Syria, so much violence all across the world. Lord, we pray for peace, especially so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring healing and forgiveness. We ask that his kingdom would advance in Syria and all over the world. Lord, we've heard exciting reports of what's happening in Iran as many believers are coming to Christ And I pray that that would spread all across the Middle East, that the power of Jesus and the forgiveness and grace and the love that you have in Christ would be obvious as people again and again are willing to testify, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Savior. Lord, I pray that that would be true in our church. And as I think of our churches in our neighborhood, I think of Mayfair Bible and and, and Pastor Michael. Pray that you would bless their church this morning. They are striving to be a godly people humbly committed to your word, and I pray that you would bless them in every way imaginable because of it. Or I pray for the rock, the, the challenges they've had with trying to build a building, and, and I ask that you would bless their fellowship. Pray as they have not been able to meet together as a large congregation, that you would keep their fellowship focused on you, that people would continue to be discipled, and I pray that you'd bless them in every way, and we thank you and praise you for their friendship and fellowship Lord, we pray for our church. Father, 
we all, just as humans, have anxieties and fears and worries and, and things that cause us anger. And I pray that you would help us as we go to your word to humble ourselves before you, not in a way that leaves us sorrow or fearful, but in a way that lets us know your great love for us that Jesus has described. God, we can read about it, we can hear about it, but only you can impress this on our hearts. Only you can give us great peace, and we want to humbly ask for it now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is Humble, Worry-Free Faith. And I'm going to be in 1 Peter in just a minute, but before I go there, I'd like to read a selection from Luke's gospel. I was just praying through a couple of verses from Luke chapter 12, if you want to read those later. But right now, I'm going to read a portion from Luke chapter 8, because as Peter acknowledges the reality that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, Jesus describes in part what Satan does. And I think it's worth a moment to see how Jesus describes this. And so scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Luke says, When a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, He said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. The one along the path are those who have heard it, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given." 
And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, I read those verses after Jesus explains the parable because I think in those few verses in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives us a careful application for everyone who has heard his words. He warns there is a type of hearing that is not believing. And he describes three different categories in his parable for those who do not bear fruit. In other words, They've heard the message. Some have even believed in the message. But for different reasons, they do not continue in belief. And so Jesus says, this isn't a parable to explain the people around you who have fallen away. This isn't a parable to explain the dangers of life for someone else. This is a parable for you and for me so that we take care how we hear. And perhaps most frighteningly, he says that to the one who has, in other words, the one who hears and continues in belief, more will be given because God is a generous God and you will grow in knowledge and in grace. But from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And I want to emphasize that for just a moment because what it acknowledges is the danger that people can be deceived into thinking they're fine when in fact they are not fine. Jesus says there are those who think that they have something, but they are not continuing in belief for the different reasons he's described in his parable, that the cares and riches and pleasures of this life can choke out the word of God, or the exact opposite, suffering and hard times and trials and persecution can cause them to become bitter and doubt the goodness of God and so they cease believing. Or he describes Satan coming along and taking the word of God so that they simply no longer are able to remember it or believe it. You know, I might think of one of my, my little, little kids because this only works for a little while when, when your kids are super small. But if they're mad, you know, maybe, maybe somebody stepped on their toes or something like that, they can be crying and very, very upset. And if you give them the smallest piece of candy, they will instantly forget all of their troubles and be so happy and content. And I think sometimes that's exactly what Satan does to us. We hear the word of God and perhaps it's convicted our hearts. Perhaps it's bothered us. And so maybe the grace of God has begun to work in our hearts, leading us to repentance and faith and life and fruit and joy. And along comes Satan with this piece of candy. Here you go. And all of a sudden you can't remember any of the things that God has said to you so plainly and clearly. And so the word will not bear fruit in your life. Now, I don't know where you're at, and I would just encourage you right now to be devoted to hearing the word carefully. Do what you can to try to remember it. Maybe for some of you, that's going to be beginning to take notes or carrying a Bible that you can underline. Do what you can to be engaged, to try to remember the word when you hear it preached, whether it's me or another preacher. 
Try to have one thing at least that you take with you. Maybe it's an insight into a verse where you understand the word of God in a way that you hadn't before. Maybe the word of God speaks powerfully to your heart and you understand you need to make some changes. Well, you know what's gonna happen? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. For many people who hear the word, they may in a moment say, this has got to change. And for many people, it won't. So Jesus says, take care how you hear. I want to challenge you as we go to 1 Peter this morning to take care how you hear. So go with me to the book of 1 Peter. This is our second to last week in the book. Peter has been talking a lot about suffering throughout the book. In the beginning, he reminds us that we have been born again to a new and living hope. Now, he's talking to Christians. If you don't have that new and living hope, I would encourage you to look at Jesus and understand what he's done for you in dying for your sins and in rising from the dead. Recognize his great love for you and confess your sins and be saved. But that message doesn't just apply to people who haven't come to Christ yet. That message applies to believers. And Peter is reminding believers who are experiencing hard times, just like Jesus said would come. And he's saying, remember your hope. Look at the life of Jesus as your example. Be encouraged. And and last week, I talked about how God has called the church together and blessed the church with spiritual leadership in the form of elders, and that it's in that context of loving shepherds within the local church that you and I are to encourage each other when suffering comes. That within the context of leaders who love you, who pray for you, who come alongside of you, that we are to give our anxieties to God. See, I grew up in a church where I I can remember learning this verse probably as an Awana kid. I was really small. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Or this translation says, anxieties. Give your anxieties to God. God cares for you. But that verse, as true and as wonderful and as comforting as it is, is given to us in the context of a letter that's explaining how a believer is to live within a church. And so while I want to grab onto that verse and lay hold of its encouragement and give God my anxieties, I also want to humbly recognize the verses around it that must equally apply to my life if I am a believer. And so I began our prayer time asking what, caused you anxiety or fear or worry or frustration or anger and I don't know what you listed maybe it was being alone whether you are a young person hoping to be married and you're not or or whether you are a senior who is living alone maybe it's losing a job as some of you have already lost jobs and and the future within our state does not seem certain for many people maybe You have the opposite problem with someone who's lonely. Maybe you have fear and anxiety by being around other people and you're afraid of being honest and vulnerable about who you are. Maybe it's worry about your kids and your grandkids. Maybe it's a fear of getting sick. Maybe it's a fear of dying. 
I want to remind you that Peter, as we've seen, is talking both to those who are young and old. He's talking to men and women. He's even talking to those who are slaves, literally in bondage, who were very often abused. Most likely, many of the readers of this letter were a sort of refugee who'd been forced to move out of their homes. They're not sure how to live in the new settlements in in the ancient world. A few of the people in this letter were rich, but most of them were poor. And so you might think, what kind of anxieties did they have? Well, they're very similar to the anxieties that we have. Some of these people would have been victims of abuse. Some of these people would have worried that they just wouldn't have enough to feed their families. Some of these people would have been afraid as Christians had been persecuted that if it was found out that they worshipped Jesus, that they could be imprisoned and tortured and even killed. And so many of them would have had a kind of fear. And Peter writes this whole letter to help them. He wants to remind them that if they have trusted Christ, that they have been born again to a new and a living hope, a hope that's alive even when you continue in present suffering. He wants to remind them that their trials are part of God's good plan. And he has given them Christ as an example of trusting the Father. And we don't do this alone, but God has put us together in the church to love one another, to support one another. And he has given us godly elders who lead us closer to Christ. And church, I said last week, I believe that we need to think about how we develop a sort of spiritual leadership in our church more broadly so that all of us can benefit from this kind of spiritual discipleship. How do we raise up elders so that Those who are lonely and afraid are ministered to. And it's my prayer that we would begin that process in the coming weeks as we look through 1 Timothy's letter. I know that might cause anxiety and fear. We might be afraid of division within the church. Saints, we have nothing to fear from the word of God. Nothing. We have nothing to fear as we follow the instructions laid down for us in Scripture. And so Peter Before he tells us to cast our anxieties on God, he gives us some careful instructions that are tied up with the passage I preached on last week. And the first thing he says is for you and I to humble ourselves before God. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 7. Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, and if you remember, that means those who are spiritually younger, those who are less mature than the elders who are responsible for spiritual leadership in the church. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he turns and says, clothe yourselves, all of you, elders included, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I believe Peter's command to humble yourselves is first especially true 
within the church. Before he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, how do we put humility in practice within the context of our church? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, we can be humble by obeying what James says when we confess our faults to one another and pray for one another. Now, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be honest about their own faults. We love to pray for someone else's illness because it's a safe thing to do, and we should do that, absolutely. But who wants to stand in front of their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, man, I'm really battling with unbelief. I'm really battling with depression. You know, I, I have battled with substance addictions and and. I'm struggling again. Who wants to say that? And yet it's true, not just outside the church, but inside the church. And so we humble ourselves, all of us with one another, when we're honest with each other, when we talk about the things that matter. You know, those are the things that cause us fear and anxiety because we can't control them. They seem to control us. And part of humbling ourselves is being honest with each other. Allowing us to pray for each other. Having a fellowship within the church that is deeper than friendship, deeper than family, that is intended to help you in your weakness. Not only that, we listen to each other patiently. Humble people are the best listeners because they're not waiting to tell you the answer to your problem necessarily. You know, godly, wise people can do that, but first, they are great, careful listeners. Some of the humblest people I've ever met are people that spent more time asking me questions, and so when we left, I felt like I knew myself better in a weird way, and then I wished that they had talked more because I realized that I still didn't know them, but it was a strange and a beautiful experience. Listen to each other patiently in the context of the church when we've got different ideas about ministries, when the word of God seems to say that perhaps we should change how our leadership is structured. Before we insist that no, this is the way it has to be done, let's listen to each other patiently. Not only that, scripture teaches that in humility we are not to insist on our own way. But instead, we are all to seek God's way, which means, saints, humble yourselves by saturating yourself in the word of God. Humble yourself by saturating yourself in the word of God. And Peter says, humble yourself under God's hand. Now, I think part of what he means is the hand of God moves history, both globally and personally. And so as you look around at the things that are happening in your life and in our church and in our community and our world, humbling yourself under the hand of God recognizes that none of this is an accident, that God's timing is perfect and his purpose is good. And so when you're tempted to be angry and when you're tempted to be afraid and you're tempted to be anxious, humbling yourself under God's hand means you remember who God is and that he has the right to conduct history as he wills. And that he is always good. I'm so comforted by the statement of Abraham 
As he's praying in a terrifying situation in Genesis, God has told him that that he's going to, to rain down his justice and wrath on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says to him, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And he will. Even when you and I struggle to understand it, the judge of all the earth will do what's right. So humble yourself under his hand. Part of that humbling is humbling yourself within the church. God has not called you to be a lone believer. You know, Protestants don't embrace the leadership of a pope in Rome. They don't. But very often we become our own pope wherever we go. No, no, I don't agree with that. Well, who are you? Do you have the authority to decide what's right and true? Do I? No, none of us do. Instead, we are to humble ourselves within the church by together seeking the wisdom of God found in the pages of Scripture. And if what we do is different than what God has outlined in the pages of Scripture, I believe the humblest thing is to recognize that and to try to become in alignment with Scripture. Part of that humbling yourself is under his word, believing and trusting in it. Not just in the context of a church, but I mentioned if you're not a believer in Jesus, humbling yourself recognizes that you are a sinner in danger of God's wrath and you need the blood of Jesus to cover your sins. And so you humble yourself when you acknowledge and admit that. You humble yourself when you obediently are baptized, publicly saying, I need the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus in order to be right with God. Humble yourself by obeying the command of Jesus. And not only that, recognize this incredible truth that God gives grace to the humble and At the end of verse 6, Peter says, at the proper time, God may exalt you. Now, all of us have seen arrogant people be deeply humbled, right? We we almost enjoy it. It's it's like an art form. It's all over TV. It it, it doesn't, doesn't take much. You can see some little kid that thinks he's a great basketball player, and I'm a terrible basketball player, but I'm better than most little kids. So... I can humble a little kid under my mighty basketball playing skills, even if they are not great. At the right time, God exalts those who are humble. And so I want to say that if we have an attitude and a disposition to learn from the word of God, we have a great future and a great hope and a great blessing. No matter what happens in 2021, in Michigan or in the United States or globally because God exalts those who humble themselves under his word. And here, in fact, is the main point of my message. Normally, I try to give this first, but I felt like we needed to get here before it would make sense. So here, if you're gonna remember one thing, this is what I think it should be. Number one, humble yourself before God with other people And in prayer, and God will exalt you. I'm going to say that again. Humble yourself before God with other people and in prayer, and God will exalt you. 
Now, I haven't talked about prayer very much at all, but that's what I think Peter means when he says that we are to give our cares to God or to cast our cares on God. Or in the ESV, when he says, casting all your anxieties on him. Well, how do you do that? I believe primarily you do that in prayer. It can be prayer with other people where you've been honest and humble before them. It ought to be prayer in your personal life on a daily basis as you acknowledge the things that cause you fear and worry. And again and again, give them to God, recognizing he loves you. He's bigger than any of the things that you're afraid of, and he will take care of it even if you don't see how. Think for a moment of an Old Testament saint, someone like Joseph, who humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Although he was innocent, he was thrown in prison, had been sold into slavery before that. And in the proper time, God raised him to be the most powerful man in Egypt under Pharaoh, and through his leadership, thousands and thousands of people were saved, but even more than that, the family of promise was saved so that one day God would keep his promise to bring the Savior Jesus through the seed of Abraham. Now Joseph was humbled under the mighty hand of God as God ruled world events. And at the proper time, Joseph was exalted. In my scripture reading, I'm reading through the book of Exodus right now. And God works world events so that Moses, who has humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, is now exalted before Pharaoh as God pours out his judgment on Egypt because Pharaoh has hardened his heart and will not let the people of God go. And God exalts his people as he delivers them in freedom. It's true again and again throughout the Old Testament. And Peter says the crazy thing, it's not just true in Bible stories, it's true in your life. As you humble yourself under God's hand, he will exalt you at the proper time. But not only is it true of Old Testament saints like Joseph and Moses, Jesus did this. He humbled himself before God with other people, and in prayer. And I want to give you two short examples of how this is true. Perhaps you remember in John's gospel, and I'm sorry, I, I, I have the verses in my notes here, and I thought I had the chapter, but I don't. Jesus, right before he dies, washes the disciples' feet, and this is what he said. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, that's you and me, is not greater than his master, that's Jesus. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus put this into practice. He humbled himself before the other people that he served with, and he commanded us to do the same. But not only did he humble himself before other people, he cast his fears and anxieties on God. And you say, where did he do that? Well, the most obvious answer to that is it's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he dies. So Luke 22, he's so anxious, he's sweating blood. And the scripture says he prays 
giving God his anxieties and then says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he humbles himself under the hand of God, giving God his anxieties, but in humility submits to God's plan and will for his life. So he gives his anxieties in prayer and humbles his life and obediently is willing to die on a cross. And so you and I are to do the same thing. Well, how do you cast your cares on him? I've got two kinds of cares that I think we need to cast on our loving Heavenly Father. One of them is everyday cares. The, the things that are so common that maybe they're more like a fly that buzzes around your head than they are like a deep wound that drives you crazy that makes you think you're going to die. So, the, so let's talk about the flies before we talk about the deep life-threatening wound. The, the, the everyday cares. Worries about what you eat, what you drink. Worries about food and clothing. Talk to God about them. Stop worrying about them. Jesus literally mentions these things and tells us, your heavenly father knows that you need them, so do not worry. Recognize God's tender care of every sparrow all over the world and know that he will take care of you. Let your fears and anxiety drive you into the arms of your heavenly father who loves you. Those are the things, they matter. Yeah, of course they do. But let them drive you to your heavenly father. Give them to him. Those are your daily cares. But let's talk for a second about your deepest fears. Maybe these are things you're, you're even afraid to write down in case someone finds the piece of paper and identifies your handwriting, right? How do you cast those on him? Well, number one, you openly pray about them with your heavenly father. Openly tell God your fears even your anger. You might think, can I do that? Many people who are angry at God feel like they can't talk to him. And maybe to some extent that's true. And so you need help. There are psalm after psalm after psalm of angry, fearful people pouring their hearts out to God. And I'm going to give you a couple to look at. Psalm 22 is a psalm that Jesus prays on the cross. Yeah, it has some encouragement. It's got some hope. But it includes these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, absolutely, that's ultimately true of Christ. When the Father turns away on the cross and, and the full wrath of his anger is poured out on the Son on our behalf. But it's also a prayer that believing saints prayed for thousands of years when they look around and it feels like God doesn't exist. So when you feel an atheist growing in your heart, Pray the prayer of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? You're probably not going to come to prayer meeting and say, guys, I think I might be an atheist now. But you can go in your prayer closet and openly confess your fears and ask God where he is. He's helped us do that by giving us scriptures that honestly pray those prayers. And the Psalms are full of prayers like this. Not only Psalm 22, Psalm 88, where the psalmist asks, God, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Talk about accusing God of something. I mean, I mean Jesus has just told us, you read the words of Jesus, Jesus says, your heavenly father loves you. You're more valuable than many sparrows and you can know all those truths. But when the darkness doesn't lift from your heart, 
And you look around and, and things are awful and your heart is beginning to rebel within you and you feel like God's not even there. Look at Psalm 88 and just honestly pray those things to your heavenly father. He's really big. He can take it. And he wants you to come to him and be honest about where your heart is. Or Psalm 89 Psalm 89 is tricky because most of it is recounting this amazing history of how God has worked in Israel. And you think, man, this is a really encouraging psalm. Then you get to the end of it, and the psalmist says, all right, God, you did all those things hundreds of years ago, but you're not doing it now. Has your steadfast, unfailing love come to an end? And it almost takes the entire Bible and throws it in God's face. Psalm 89 is written by a believer that's not experiencing the blessings of God and his life is full of fear and anxiety. He's remembering God's promises to David. David, you're never going to lack a king on the throne. Problem was, there was no Davidic king on the throne. And so it seemed like God just wasn't keeping his promises. What does he do? He talks to God about it and he leads others in talking to God about it. Can you imagine attending church and we're going to sing a song that yells at God about his absence. I have never seen a song written like that. But the Psalms are full of them. Because sometimes that's where our hearts are. And the healthiest and best thing that you can do when that's where your heart is, is cast that anxiety on the throne of grace to find mercy and help in your time of need. Cast your anxieties, not just your daily concerns and fears, which are real, but cast your deepest fears, which you're afraid to even voice. Call out to God. Know that the Bible is full of prayers like that and use it to help you pray. And I didn't plan on saying this, but I, but I uh, sometimes, I don't do this daily. Uh, many of you read a little book that I passed around a couple of years ago by a guy named Don Whitney that talks about how to pray the Bible. And one of the things that he does is he glances at five psalms every day. Doesn't read them carefully. He's looking for one that matches the tenor of his heart. So if he's full of joy, he's going to find a psalm that helps him be joyful. And if he's full of fear, he's going to find a psalm that helps him pray. And so what he does is today is the 28th. So he'll look at Psalm 28, Psalm 58, Psalm 88, and Psalm 118, and if that's five, then he quits. He may also look at Psalm 148, not sure. Um, I, I should have used my fingers. He, he looks at five Psalms because odds are one of those five Psalms is going to help him pray. It's going to find the emotion that his heart is in, and it's going to lead him to the throne of grace. Now, you don't have to do that, but if you don't know the Psalms very well, and you don't know where to go in the Bible to help you find something, try it. Psalms is a really big book. It's easy to find. You can flip through your Bible like this, and you will find it. There are 150 of them. And just say, okay, tomorrow's going to be the first. I'm going to look at Psalm 1. I'm going to look at Psalm 30. I'm going to look at Psalm 60. I'm going to look at Psalm 90. And I'm going to look at Psalm 120. See, that's, that's really helpful. And between those five Psalms, you're not going to read them all super carefully. You're going to skim really fast. And between those five Psalms, you'll find something that will match your heart. 
God has given us a great variety where sometimes the psalmist is so happy, you're like, nobody's that happy. And sometimes he's so depressed, you're like, God, how is this in the Bible? And you will find something that helps you cast your anxieties on God or something that helps you lift your heart in praise. Saints, do this. Go before the throne of grace every day. It doesn't have to take a half an hour or an hour. You can do this in 10 or 15 minutes and go before the throne of grace. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that in due time, he will exalt you. Use your fingers if you have to. We often need this kind of assurance. Not only does Jesus model this kind of prayer, but this line that as we cast our cares on him, he cares for us, we see in the life of Jesus that this also is true. You remember one of the gospels tells us as Jesus is praying in the garden, God the Father sends angels to minister to his son so that Jesus has the strength to remember the Father's love as he goes to the cross where he will experience the deepest, cruelest agony on behalf of guilty sinners while he himself is innocent. The Father sends angels to minister to Christ in response to this kind of prayer. Have you ever wondered if perhaps you've missed out on God ministering to your heart because you haven't spent time in prayer asking for his mercy and help? I think that's a real thing. I think sometimes we miss out on the goodness of God because we don't call on him. We don't ask for his grace. We don't ask for his mercy. And saints, I am not in any way trying to guilt you into some sort of spiritual discipline or habit. I'm just saying there's grace, there's mercy. Let's seek it. If you have a different way to find it, awesome. I'd love to know what it is. All I want to do is encourage you to find the grace that God has promised us when your heart is feeling anxious and fearful. Humble yourself in the context of the church with other people. Humble yourself in prayer. He will exalt you. We often need this assurance. And Peter, because he loves us, gives us one reason that will cause us anxiety that will drive us to this type of practice, humbling ourselves under the Father's hand. The second point, quickly, I want to look at this morning is the devil's hunger. So the first point this morning is that you are to humble yourself, especially within the context of the church, especially on your knees in prayer. But my second point is that there is a a devil who is hungry, who wants to destroy you. He hates you. And Peter describes him like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brother's Throughout the world. Now there are a couple pieces to that command. First, the danger is real. And it's easy to get caught up in the news cycle and to mistake what the danger actually is. The danger that you and I and our loved ones and our neighbors face is not so much that we will lose our, f- our freedoms and America will fall or that lunatics will 
seize power and make our country horribly unjust. That's real. That's something we ought to pray about. Peter never talks about the emperor. He never says, pray that God installs an emperor that will bless his people. He trusts that God is the one in control of the throne in Rome. He does want us to pray for those people, but as he's talking to suffering people, his first concern is not pray that people are nice to you and give you a better tax break. It's just not. His first concern is that they might lose faith and prove to not be genuine believers by falling away from Christ. That is an eternal danger, not a temporal danger. Scripture teaches kingdoms come and go. That's just how God has arranged it in history. They will rise and they will fall. God blesses a people for a time, and then when they turn and rebel against him, he brings their rule and influence to an end. It happened in Egypt, happened in Babylon, happened in Rome, happens everywhere. The main concern of Scripture is not who is in power. The main concern of Scripture, because it assumes God is in power, the main concern of Scripture is, are you right with God? And so as the things around you seem spiraling out of control and threatening and danger, Peter says, watch and be aware. He's not saying, call your legislators. Maybe you should do that. God bless you if you do. He's saying, recognize the spiritual danger that your soul is in as you doubt whether or not God is good. Recognize the spiritual danger that your loved ones are in as they are distracted from the good news of Jesus, and this other thing over here seems more important than God. So saints, recognize what Peter tells us as we suffer in this life. The danger is not that you have cancer or COVID or any other illness. The danger is that your illness or your children or your church would cause you to turn away from God. And if that happens, you will be eternally lost. So Peter warns us, how do you do this? This is the same warning Jesus gave us, right? Jesus said in our scripture reading this morning, be careful how you hear. You have an enemy who wants to distract you. It happens to me on a daily basis. I have things that I need to read for my personal devotions, to to prepare my sermons, and I am constantly tempted to read the news instead because I feel informed and somehow powerful because I know what's going on, even though I can't do anything about it. So sometimes, turn the news off. Open your Bible. Find a psalm that reflects your heart and your fears and cast them out before the God who can do something about it. Recognize that Satan will use the events of your life to try to drive you from the good shepherd. His desire is your destruction. So Peter says, be sober-minded. The danger is real. Be watchful. Recognize how it can happen. You know, when you approach an intersection while you're driving, it's a good idea to look both ways, even if the light's green, right? We're in the habit of doing these things because fools are out there, and sometimes I'm one of them. If that's true In driving, how much more should it be true of our lives spiritually? 
where we can recognize the danger of believing lies and the danger of being deceived. And what does Peter tell us to do? He wants us to be wholly devoted to the word of God so that we can recognize truth from falsehood. He says, resist him, verse nine, firm in your faith. Now, if you're gonna be firm in your faith, you have to know what you believe. The, the Greek word for faith is the same word as belief. Belief needs content. It's not a feeling. Belief is being informed of the facts and acting upon them. And so if you are going to stand firm in your faith and resist the devil who wants to lie to you and drive you from the good shepherd, you have to know what you believe. And Peter has instructed us earlier in this book about Christ. And we're going to talk more about Jesus in just a second. But the point is, you have to know what you believe if you're going to resist the devil and avoid this danger. Not only does he stand firm in your faith, but he also says, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When we experience suffering, the temptation is to feel like it's only us. Why me? God must be picking on me. God must be angry with me. God must hate me. Those are all things that everyone thinks. And the truth is, Peter says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the whole world. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians, when you're dealing with sinful temptation, says the exact same thing. You have not been tempted beyond what you are able. No temptation is unique to you. But everyone experiences the same type of temptation. It's true of temptation. It's true of suffering. And so resist the devil firm in your faith knowing that whether it's temptation or suffering, that other people are experiencing the same trials. And then he gives us this awesome and great hope in recognizing that you're not alone, that you're part of a body of believers. He says this, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the last thing that I want to point you to this morning is God's power and protection. God's power and protection. I mentioned earlier Jesus being our example in casting his cares before the Father and Jesus being our example in the Father caring for him. Jesus is also our example in facing the danger of the devil. You can read about the temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4. And I would say that Jesus is also tempted by the devil in Luke 22 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. God's power is greater than the devil. Jesus overcame the devil. He's not giving you tips on how you can defeat Satan too. He did it for you. You look at his victory. You follow his example, yes. But first, you look at his victory and know that even when you fail, the grace of God is greater than your sin. And because Jesus has died for you and risen from the dead, even when you fail, you have great hope in God's power and protection. That's why Peter calls him the God of all grace. And he says that after you have suffered for a little while, that the God who called you, 
Remember, he begins this letter talking about the call of God, the God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, glory that will never be threatened by a virus or a politician. The God who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore. What's restoration? means you're broke. means it's not right. I was reading an article this past week that's addressed to young pastors like me uh, who want to be good, faithful pastors to seniors, to those who are a little bit older. One of the things it talked about is one of the great frustrations of age that I have heard about is that your body doesn't work anymore. Maybe you're a man and you used to be strong and you're not as strong as you used to be. Maybe you're a woman and you experience aches and pains physical disabilities and frustrations that you never experienced as a young woman. And that's a very real part of your personal suffering. You know what Peter's saying to you? After you've suffered for a little while, if you're a believer in Jesus, God himself is going to restore you. The stuff that's broken now will not be broken after God fixes it. You have a hope that your suffering is temporary and your glory is eternal. He will restore what's broken now and he will confirm and strengthen and establish you. You will not be left in weakness. You will experience the strength of God in your life. And so that's why I wanted to read this morning from Luke's gospel because Jesus says these great and beautiful things about how God is loving to us in our trials now, providing for us all we need. But Jesus is not only our teacher, he's our example here too. And Peter has already told us to pay attention to the suffering of Jesus, how he entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. It's in chapter two, how we are to do the same types of things. But I want to remind you of another passage Philippians 2, Paul describes how Jesus humbles himself just like Peter has commanded us to do. He says, Christian, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count it robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and took on the likeness of a man. And not only did he humble himself in the incarnation, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Christ is our example in this type of humility. But if you know that passage, you know Philippians 2, what comes next? Paul says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest of heights and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is your example, not only in casting your cares on God, not only in overcoming the devil who hates you, he is your example in future glory and exaltation. For my devotions this morning, I read in four places, not because I'm super spiritual, but because I think I need to as a pastor. And so I mentioned I read in Exodus. I also read in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about the glory that will be revealed at the resurrection. 
And he says, you know, this is true of those of us who are, who are younger, but we don't feel the need for it as deeply. So saints, if you're a little bit older, if you've got some aches and pains, if you've got some frustrations because your body's not what it once was, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what kind of resurrection are we gonna be raised to? What kind of glory is in the future? And he says that it's like a seed being planted in the ground. You wouldn't look at an acorn and think, man, that's gonna be an oak. You think, man, that's tiny. That's something that you bust the top off of and try to make a super loud whistle as a kid. It's fun, but you wouldn't say it's strong and full of glory and strength, but the seed becomes the tree. And Paul says, if that's true in nature, saints, understand your broken body is gonna die unless Jesus returns first. And it's gonna be buried like a seed in the ground. And one day at the resurrection of Christ, it's gonna be raised in glory. And the exaltation that comes with being a faithful follower of Christ is greater than you can possibly imagine. It's so much greater than an oak tree is to an acorn. Your body is broken. It's gonna be better than when you were young. It'll be more beautiful than you can imagine. It'll be more incredible than you can imagine. No one will be able to harm you. And so all of the glory and praise goes to the God who makes this possible in Christ. Saints, and when I say that, I especially mean believers, those who are already Christians, if you need this this morning. Maybe you've come in with fears and anxieties that you're afraid to tell anybody about. Maybe you've heard my message last week and, and you're concerned about the future of our church and, and possible division. Satan would love to destroy our church and every church. That's true. But you know what? As we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. So let's be faithful. Let's humble ourselves under the scriptures. Let's humble ourselves with each other. Let's be faithful to cast our anxieties on God and to trust that in the right time, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The last thing I wanna say is if you're not a believer, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching online, none of the things that I've said will apply to you. You will not have this hope. You instead will be devoured by the destruction that Satan is trying to lead you to. And here's the biblical truth. Satan himself actually doesn't destroy you. God does. God is the one who will finally judge you. Satan is powerless. God himself is the one who will pour out his wrath on you if you have rejected Christ. And so I want to urge you, you do not know how long you have. Do not put it off. Seek the Lord Jesus today. As I have encouraged believers to cast their anxieties and fears and worries and angers and frustrations on God, cast your sins before him. God has nailed them to the cross of Jesus Christ and you can experience his forgiveness. Know his forgiveness today. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word. We pray that we be obedient to it. Strengthen our hearts by knowing your love. And I pray that you would make us eager for your exaltation. 
convince us of the future hope that you have promised us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.